backing out 56 pass, I wasn't prepared to translate that as I was doing that little tease. Oh, that's that right. little mark with the A and then the ring around it. At? See, that's what I said. Mm-hmm. Um, Kay said she thought it was about. Yeah. Oh. But I'd never heard or it. I'd never heard it said. Back, back, I'd always seen around. the mark, but never yeah. heard it said. And then yeah. it sounded stupid when I said it. Violence at NBC. <laughs> yeah, I heard around or about the lunchroom the other week. <laughs> there it is. Violence at NBC. GE com. I mean. Well, what Allison should know. What, what do you is say internet about anyway? Internet is uh, that massive computer right. network. Mm-hmm. The one that's becoming really big now. What do you mean? That's big. Wait, how does one? What do you write to it like mail? No, a lot of people use it and communicate. I guess they can communicate with NBC writers and producers. Allison, can you explain what internet is? No, she can't say anything in ten seconds or less. Oh, <laughs> oh. Allison will be in the studio shortly. What, is what does it mean? It's a, it's a giant computer network made up made up of uh, started from. Oh, I thought uh, you were going to tell us what this was. It's so like a, look a computer in the billboard. It's not, it's, it's not in there. It's it, it's it's a computer billboard, but it's nationwide, right. and it's it's several uh, universities and everything all joined together. And right, and others can access it. And, right, and it's getting bigger and bigger all the time. It came great. in really handy during the quake. A lot of people—that's how they were communicating out to tell family and loved ones they were okay because all the phone lines were down. I was telling Katie, and I was. But you don't need you don't need that you don't need a phone line to operate no. internet. No, no. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 166 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And we are very excited. Long time coming. At long last, uh, we have a great guest on today with us, Ben Tarnoff, who many of you will know as uh, one of the co-founders and co-editors of Logic Magazine. Um, For my money, the best tech and society magazine going right now. Um, If you don't if you don't read t- Logic and you listen to TMK, you're fucking up. That's all I got to say. You're fucking up. Uh, but but the excuse for Ben to come on this week is he's got a great book coming out from Verso very soon uh, in mid-June called Internet for the People, The Fight for Our Digital Future. And uh, in the book, as we'll, as we'll talk about with Ben, um, it is a great kind of history of the the origins of the internet um, and this kind of evolution and political economic development of the internet over the last um, uh, nearly 30 years of its uh, existence as a privatized network. We'll get to all of that, but Ben, thank you so much for coming on TMK. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Your book is is great. I mean, it's a, it's a really... Uh, it's a really, I appreciate how breezy and cruisy of a read it is. It's like really well written and engagingly written, which is always a joy when reading about this stuff. Um, uh, and, but, but on top of that, I think what one of the things that you're doing in this book is in many ways kind of like reviving this lost history of the internet. Like, you know, we, we, we talk about, you know, we as in TMK, but we as in the general discourse as well have talk a lot about the internet or what the internet 
has, you know, is doing to your brain or to your relationships, or we talk about the platforms that now essentially are the internet in a lot of ways. Um, but we don't actually spend a lot of time considering the internet as this network of networks, as this internetwork. Um, and we don't spend a lot of time considering the materiality of that, but also the history of that, the, the historical materialism of the internet, if you will. Um, and I think one your book book is doing a, a, a really great job of, I think, just reviving or at least reminding people um, that the internet as this thing actually has a history. Um, I, I remember, you know, there was an essay that was going a while, around a while back ago from one of the MIT Media Lab people where he was arguing that, you know, the original sin of the internet is advertising. But I think you actually trace it back a little bit further and say, no, the original sin of the internet was privatization, um, was the creation of this public infrastructure and then its wholesale handover to um, a handful of private corporations in the mid-90s. So I'm wondering if you could just kind of bring us back to that, that origins of the internet, um, kind of, you know, yeah, like where, where, where did the idea for an internet come from and how did it actually end up growing to being what we now know it as? Yeah, great question, Jathan. And and thanks so much for that intro. I'm, I'm so glad you enjoyed the book. My instinct when I started out was to historicize the internet, was to try to understand where does it come from? Partly by answering the question of where does it come from, we can also answer the question of how does it work? I think the the idea that we need to explain how the internet actually worked, like what what the internet actually is, was something that occurred to me in the course of writing this book, because we talk so much about the internet. The internet is such a big part of our popular discourse, but we kind of assume that everybody already knows what the internet is already. And when you scratch the surface of it, it's actually a much more difficult problem to solve. Like, How do we actually articulate what the internet is? We can talk about fiber optic cables, we can talk about data centers, we can talk about Facebook, but if you had to characterize the internet as a whole, how would you do so? So to try to answer that question, first of all, for myself, because I was interested, but then also for my readers, I, I had to go back to the point of origin when the internet was invented. And I'm going to go back even a little bit further and give you kind of the prehistory of the internet, because I think that's actually pretty important for understanding how and why the internet was invented. And I think it's fair to say that the prehistory begins actually with the launch of Sputnik in 1957. And this is a moment that signals the Soviet supremacy in the space race. It signals the uh, extraordinary advancement of, of Soviet science and technology, and it triggers this full-scale panic attack in the American ruling class. And one of the consequences of this panic attack is the creation of ARPA, the Advanced Research Projects Agency, later renamed DARPA, which is the advanced R&D arm, still continues to this day, of the Pentagon. One of the things that DARPA starts putting a lot of money to in the early 1960s is computer networking. The reason they do this uh, is because computers at the time were very, very large. If you think about the IBM mainframe of, of the era, it, it's enormous. You can Google uh, pictures of it. You know, These are literally cabinets that take up, in some cases, a whole floor. They cost millions of dollars. They're very expensive to maintain. And 
DARPA doesn't want to have to keep buying computers for all of its contractors and all of its various sites across the country. It wants to find a way for them to share these computing resources. So that's what motivates this original investment in computer networking. And this culminates with the creation of ARPANET, which comes online in 1969, which is a cutting-edge computer network using a new technology called packet switching, which had just been implemented by a man named Donald Davies at the National Physical Laboratory in the UK. So there's a kind of international story here, although of course it's it's focused on the United States and the Pentagon in particular. And what ARPANET enables DARPA and its web network, we could say, of contractors to do is to share computing resources from with one another. So you don't necessarily have to be sitting at that mainframe in Northern Virginia to run a program on it. You could run a program on it remotely. Now, why does this matter? Because the concept of resource sharing is ultimately the motivation for the experiments that produce the internet. So by the mid-1970s, DARPA is interested in extending this paradigm of resource sharing, not just across a single network, but across multiple networks, across a network of networks. And what that would enable them to do is to extend computing resources potentially around the world, and also crucially to make them mobile. So there are a series of experiments in the mid-1970s um, around what are what is then called internetworking, of course, later shortened to internet, which is the origin of the term internet in which DARPA researchers are trying to find a way to connect terrestrial networks, so networks that are moving over fixed lines, copper wire essentially, like ARPANET, over radio waves and over satellite. And these are the experiments that ultimately solidify what becomes known as the internet protocol. And the internet protocol is essentially a set of rules for how these different networks that exist in different mediums like copper wire or radio waves or so on, how these different networks can interconnect, how they can communicate with one another. And what that enables these researchers to do in these experiments is to be able to send packets from a van driving down a freeway in California across the country to the east coast of the United States, Mm -hmm. then across the Atlantic over to the UK and back retracing its steps all the way back to that van in California. So that is the dream that produces the internet. Now, the last thing I'd say here is, why did this matter? Why why try to implement resource sharing in a global and a mobile way? Well, the official military justification was that this would enable forces in the field mobile forces who are potentially under enemy fire, who are potentially in jeeps or airplanes or other types of vehicles to access mainframes located in the United States. So it was a way to project American power through networking. And that's the dream that produced the original internet protocols. I mean, that already is so interesting. I don't think that we tend to relate those two things in our mind, the kind of the space race, the, you know, Cold War, uh, and the creation of the internet. Like, you know, already we can see its origins as a, not only a military project, which I think a lot of people are, are at least kind of like obliquely aware of, um, but as a project explicitly, um, about, uh, the, this kind of, 
you know, bipolar hegemony, the Cold War, a projection of American dominance, a uh, an enhancement of American uh, military power. There's also, you know, I, I don't know how true or not the story is, but, you know, you always hear these, this justification as well about the Internet is supposed to be a, a infrastructure that could survive a nuclear war, right? That it's, um, it's, it's meant to be decentralized enough uh, you know, there, there we go. There's decentralization. Shout out to all the Web3 people. Uh, but it's supposed to be decentralized enough and resilient enough, um, that it can survive, uh, a nuclear war and, and kind of keep some kind of chain of command, um, uh, among disparate people. But there again, we see, um, a, a kind of military, almost a preparation for the apocalypse, uh, justification for creating, um, this thing. Thing called the internet. The internet w- was used. I mean, was initially developed for command and control. You know, that's. I think that's that's what you're saying, Jathan, and that and that's true. I, the the complicated thing here, though, of course, is you know how determinative are these military requirements at the end of the day. And this is an interesting question that we could spend a lot of time debating. And I don't think there's an easy answer, right? Which is. You have a lot of scientists who are working on these projects who are just loving it because it's really cool. They're, they may not be personally very committed to the project of uh, American imperialism, although, of course, they don't have enough objections to it to not take DARPA money. But you know, is every single individual who is involved in what is ultimately a fairly international effort over around internetworking, is every single individual in that community committed to this project of global American military hegemony? Of course not. But you know, that's the pretext in which this project is being funded and in which you know the the justification uh, is being made so that the money gets gets unlocked. And a lot of money is required to develop a technology this revolutionary. I mean at the end of the day, only the public sector would have been able to take the kind of risks that could produce a technology this different than anything that existed before. I mean, it, it, the private sector couldn't see the money in something like this, so it had to be the public sector to do it. Yeah, I think that also, I think, kind of dovetails into the, in, into the, the next part, I think, that you kind of flesh out, which is you have the public sector financing the development of, these net, of this network, you have a sort of explicit um, on paper policy against commercialization of the internet. And then you have developed, but nonetheless you have development of, or attempts to develop private commercial networks. What, what is the, you know, what's the tipping point? What is the, what's the time in which the private sector is either able to rest or is handed over control of uh, the, the networks or determining how the internet is developed from, from uh, the point at which it was developed by the government and public sector. Yeah, so let's continue the story we started earlier, where we have these experiments in the 1970s that have produced the internet protocol, which allows us to send packets of data across heterogeneous networks to stitch together a network of networks. What happens is in 1983, 
uh, ARPA decides, uh, well, the Pentagon decides to use this new internet protocol to start stitching together some of its own networks. So at that point, the internet goes from being a protocol to a place. The, the internet actually begins to exist as a cluster of these Pentagon networks. Over the course of the 80s, however, uh, the leadership of the internet is civilianized. And it comes into uh, the hands of the National Science Foundation. So by the late 1980s, the National Science Foundation is running the core backbone of the internet, known as NSFNet, and is also subsidizing regional networks around the country that enable uh, primarily academic sites to get connected. So by the late 80s, early 90s, if you're on a college campus, you probably have access to the internet. And in fact, a lot of uh, Americans at this time their first experience of the internet would have been uh, at college. Now, what happens is in the early 90s, the National Science Foundation takes a number of steps to privatize the internet. And it's important to note here that privatization was the plan all along. The federal government never had any intention of running the internet indefinitely. I mean, they always felt that this was going to pass into the hands of the private sector. What was at stake here, though, was the pace at which that would happen and also the conditions, because there are a lot of different ways that privatization could have happened. The pace is pushed faster than initially expected, uh, in large part because of a capacity issue, which is that there's a lot of demand for the internet. A lot of people want to get online, and there isn't enough capacity to meet that demand from NSFNet, the National Science Foundation's backbone. So the timetable of privatization is moved up as a result. And then, of course, the terms of privatization also shift in response to industry pressure. Because as you might imagine, there are a number of companies, telecoms, internet service providers, who see a massive business opportunity and are eager to generate the most extreme form of privatization possible that excludes any real role for public oversight, any potential public foothold in the internet. And there's one interesting case here, which I think kind of, uh, you know, nicely narrativizes this whole saga, which is the story of Al Gore. (laughs) And I know when I was growing up, the joke was like, Al Gore said he invented the internet. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember that. I think it was like an SNL (laughs) bit or something, which is kind of unfair. I mean, I I would never want to defend Al Gore, but, you know, he did uh, play an important role in the funding of NSFNet. And he was, you know, since his his early days, you know, since the 1970s, when he was emerging as a congressman from Tennessee, he was always interested in computing and networking and was always interested in uh, providing federal support for those sorts of things. But Gore, you know, in the early 90s, he has this kind of vision of what the internet will be, which is much more of a public-private partnership. And he's interested in industrial policy. He's worried about the threat of Japanese competition um, and is interested in the idea of retaining some type of federal role in the new internet. And then by the time he is a member of the Clinton White House, that disappears. And, and the Clinton White House commits itself very strongly to an extreme form of privatization in which the private sector will take full control of the internet or the information superhighway, as it was often called in policymaking circles at the time. Uh, and there would be 
really no role for the public sector and and no no role for the public really i mean because it's not it's, uh, we don't need to make a fetish of government it's it's really that there would be no role for anything non-commercial in this new space so there are a lot of alternative possibilities that were proposed at the time but which were not implemented. And the key date here is April 1995. And that's the moment at which the National Science Foundation decommissions its backbone, the NSFNet, and the private sector takes over. Uh, there's a couple interesting things there to dig into. One is this question of like, how determinative is this, right? And that's always the kind of like fine line that has to be walked in this kind of like technological politics, especially in the way that like we do it, you know, through a kind of approach of Langdon Winner, right? Of like, you know, there are interests and there are features kind of designed into, baked into the, the creation of this. You know, the question of how determinative is it? Um, you know, there's, there's no one destiny. There's no one fate kind of written in the heavens, but it is also the case that things can't, the debt can be stacked in certain ways. Um, and I think that interestingly, we can start seeing some of the, the kind of foreshadowing and, and importance of uh, uh, business models and features, um, technical and social and political and economic of the internet that exists today, even going back, like, you know, I, I think, for example, there's an argument to be made that something around the ubiquitous, you know, X as a service model um, of, of of platforms and of Uber and the sharing economy and stuff can in some ways be traced back to the time sharing for a compute power model of uh, the way that, that the internet and that these big mainframe computers were actually used. And there was also, you know, you talked about how privatization was always the goal. Um, it was a, you know, it was a question of, of when and where, you know, to, uh, at what pace. But, you know, you, you also talk about how not, it, not only did the internet essentially get created because there was a lot of public money, um, but a whole kind of uh, system of, of contractors sprung up around that because the military, because NSF, um, were not interested in having this as like an in-house capacity. They were interested in having it. They wanted to, they wanted to buy capacity from contractors from people who would maintain and operate these services. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's also not coincidence as well that I think some of the, the, the people we're familiar with and we can start getting into now, you know, 1995 comes, the internet is privatized. Uh, you know, you have really great explanation, um, uh, around some of the potential pathways that could have happened, but didn't like the bill introduced in 1994 that, uh, uh, you know, to quote you, um, that would have made telecom companies reserve up to 20% of their capacity for quote unquote public uses. This capacity would be considered public property and the telecoms would have no control over it. But those kinds of public lanes on the information superhighway were done away with, um, but also I think we can see as well, you know, some of the, the, the kind of, uh, uh, you know, early business, uh, and commercial, uh, you know, development of the internet, the, the taking advantage of public money to create, 
uh, 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 private businesses on top of the internet, um, the, the kind of echoing of things like timeshare, then going up to, you know, X as a service as the model for how to get services on the internet. We can also see some of the, some, some old familiar names who have been there from the very beginning, people like Mark Andreessen, right? Who, uh, you know, creates Mosaic, the, the, the first uh, kind of graphic user interface for browsing the internet that actually makes it into a consumer good that helps popularize it. Um, and, you know, he, he's kind of there from the very beginning uh, and then, you know, later goes on to help, uh, you know, do all the things that he's done, whether, you know, from web one to web two to web three now. It, maybe we could start it, you know, at privatization, but I think keeping in mind that, you know, a lot of what we now conceive of as the way the internet operates didn't just come from nowhere. Those echoes, those shadows were kind of always there um, from the very beginning. Yeah, it's an interesting way to think about the internet, right? Because the internet is actually kind of old, right? I think that's part of what you're saying, Jathan, is like, we can think about this kind of sedimentation of all of these layers. And it's possible to, um, you know, it's possible to detect the survivals, the traces of those earlier layers, even even today. Um, you know, people were using the internet in the 1980s. And uh, in many ways, the experience today is, is very foreign. I mean, the experience of using the internet in the 1980s or really through much of the 90s uh, would, have been, uh, would have been very primitive by today's standards. And it's, uh, it's funny that you mentioned that like the internet is essentially a lot older than people realize. It kind of like goes back to the whole like idea of like ancient shipping lanes that become highways or like old dried up creek beds that become roads. You know, it's like everything is just, it, nothing's really new. It's just built on things that were previously there. Old shipping lanes are, are also often where they laid telephone and telegraph wire, and then they laid fiber optic wire on top of that. So it's like, it's quite literal that you just have layers and layers and layers of, uh, of, of you know, communication technologies. I, I think the funny thing about the internet, of course, is that you know, you can still use a lot of these technologies. Like you can still use Usenet and IRC and, <laughs> you know, so it's not, it's, 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 it has these survivals, but in some sense it kind of literally survives. Like you can still experience many of the applications that an earlier generation would have, would have come up with. It just wouldn't be, you know, your, your first stop. But Jathan, to get back to your earlier question, if you think about where the internet was in 1995, it was a place that had been built by research scientists for their purposes. And it tended to attract necessarily a more technical crowd. You know, if you think about the kind of skills you would need to find information on the internet using something like Gopher in 1990, you know, early 90s, you would have needed uh, to be a little bit more comfortable with computers. So the question f facing the companies that wanted to commercialize the internet, and specifically the web, because we're not talking about the physical infrastructure of the internet right now, we're talking about what happens up the stack, what happens with where people experience the internet. And for the most part, you know, people who were arriving to the internet were experiencing it through the World Wide Web, which was the technology that was capable of mainstreaming the internet, specifically through graphical web browsers like Mosaic, kind that you mentioned, Jathan. But of course, this is also the era in which Netscape 
Navigator becomes available. 1995 is the year of Netscape's explosive IPO, which launches the whole dot-com boom. But what is the imperative? The imperative is make the internet usable, make it possible and appealing for people to come online and do things online, but above all, crucially, find a way to make money from what they do online, which is to say if the privatization of what I call the pipes, the physical infrastructure, the plumbing of the network, the business model there for a company like, let's say, MCI, to throw it back to the 90s, is we're going to sell access, right? We're going to sell you an internet subscription. That's a business model we we know and love from Comcast and, and these other horrible companies, right? But there's a new business model that needs to be invented, which is we need to monetize activity. We need to find a way to make money, not just from getting people online, but from what they do once they're online. And that actually turns out to be a very difficult problem. They're in a lot of ways having to invent like entirely new business models. There's new, you know, new technologies. You know, I think we, we, you know, we see a lot of echoes of, uh, as well of, of, of these kind of political economies. You know, I think one of the things that I really like about your book um, is that it, 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 it demands that we have a longer memory than what we're often, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of cultural and technological amnesia uh, right now where, you know, things that are not even that old are, are suddenly just forgotten. And as you were saying, you know, the internet is old. I mean, it existed um, as a, uh, as a non-privatized thing, or it's only existed as a privatized thing a bit longer than it existed as a non-privatized uh, entity in its early years. Um, you know, so that 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 suddenly you know almost doubles our history of the internet. You know, and and a lot. Uh, you know, you're you're talking about as well, kind of some interesting political economic developments in the business model where it's like, you know, can we just charge for access um, to the internet. You know, this this very typical kind of telecom model of, you know, you're charging people to use the telephone, you're charging people to use um, TV, you know, maybe uh, you're charging people, you know, at, at like, you know, really granular levels, right? For So you're, you're charging people like minutes of telephone usage rather than just one blanket kind of access to the telephone. And I think, you know, you see a lot of that with um, the internet in its early days, especially, uh, you know, we see it now with bandwidth and we can get into that, but it's not so much like it, it's data instead of minutes um, that becomes the point at which you start charging people and making uh, or making money from people. Uh, and, and I think that becomes a kind of really crucial turning point here is where um, the, the, the charge the way to make money from people stops being about just purely access per se, but starts being about activity. Um, and then who, who was it that really kind of uh, hit that, that hit that nail on the head that kind of innovated that new business model of activity, not access. So I think it was Pierre Midyar. I actually, I, I actually give a lot of prominence to eBay in this book, which is, Kind of weird in many ways because it's not really. I mean, we all know eBay. It's obviously not a small or unknown company, but I, th- I think, you know, I'm, I'm, 
Jathan, I'm sure you're more familiar with the scholarship here. So you can tell me if, if I'm wrong about this. But I, I don't think that eBay is typically seen as a kind of major hinge in the history of the internet. And I, I think it is actually and I, I, I'm willing to be told that I'm wrong here. But I think it is because not just that I was a uh, enthusiastic eBay user back in the day. This is obviously partly biographical, uh, but that what Omidyar does with a website that at the time was called Auction Web. So before it was eBay, it was Auction Web. Started in 1995, that fateful year of the termination of the NSFNet backbone, the launch of the Netscape IPO, the opening of Amazon.com. It was all going down in 1995. Uh, on Labor Day weekend in 1995, Omidyar, who at the time was already a, a reasonably wealthy software engineer, decided to make a website called Auction Web. And as the name would suggest, and as we know, of course, from the subsequent history of eBay, this was a site where people could come together and buy and sell goods on the internet, specifically through auctions. And the genius of this, where there are many geniuses of it, but one of the geniuses of it was that it was an extremely lean, as we would come to call it, business model. He was really just connecting buyers and sellers. There was a message board where they could leave reviews for one another. He encouraged them to work out their differences with one another, and he took a cut of transactions. So, as you might expect, you know he starts minting money. You know he's he's making ten thousand dollars a month fairly soon afterwards, and it originates as a side project that he just is doing for fun on evenings and weekends and becomes a major business. And he kind of stumbles backwards into it. And the funny thing about eBay is that it's actually one of the few companies in this 90s dot-com boom that is making a lot of money. You know, it's not like a pets.com punchline where, you know, they're spending tons of money on advertising in the case of pets.com, famously this ridiculous Super Bowl ad, uh, having, you know, no profits and then imploding nine months later. It's 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 making a lot of money from the beginning. And what I argue in the book is that Omidyar kind of happened upon this very lucrative innovation, which is how to apply the essentially social nature of the internet. The fact that the internet really from its beginning became a popular medium because enabled people to congregate together, to communicate, to socialize, primarily through email, which was the first very popular internet application, that Omidyar found a way to synthesize or fuse the community with the market, that he found a way to leverage this social nature of the internet for the purposes of profit-making. And in particular, he does so by uh, creating a website that has three characteristics. It's a middleman, as I said before, it connects buyers and sellers, takes a cut of their transactions. It is a, a maker and beneficiary of network effects. Network effects, uh, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, refers to the fact that the more people are using a particular site, the more useful it becomes. So the site was designed to generate and to reap dividends from network effects, and it, it functioned as a kind of sovereign. And that last piece is actually very important, which is that originally Omidyar believed that this auction site could essentially be a self-organizing market. He has libertarian politics at the time, and that reflects a kind of libertarian investment in the idea that when people come together and buy and sell, they can essentially self 
regulate. But what he finds is that disputes occur, you know, bad behavior occurs, scams occur, and increasingly he has to play a larger and larger role in the governance. In other words, whenever we have markets in human history, we need things that look like states, right? That markets are in fact figments of politics. They're created and guaranteed through state power. And Omidyar essentially discovers this in the course of creating and running auction web so that he has to implement a kind of sovereignty. So long story short, these three elements that lie behind his lucrative fusion of the community with the market, in my view, pioneer the basic elements that would go on to characterize what we call platforms. So in a, in a sentence, I make the argument that eBay and specifically auction web, its first iteration was a kind of proto-platform, that it gave us a kind of window into the future of how the platforms would be built and how the profit potential of the internet would be unlocked. I would love to keep talking a bit about platforms because I think that section in the in the third chapter where you're talking about the the limits of the of the metaphor um, remind me also a bit of like you know discussions we've had here about the limits of other metaphors that we use to discuss tech, whether it be uh, trying to think through it as a feudal uh, system or trying to think through. Uh, if uh, platforms make sense or if they exist or if they're actual mark or if they're actual um, like network effects or modes and, and, and these other features that we commonly ascribe to them to explain the ascendance of them uh, exist. I would based on what you are thinking through in this section and in the metaphor you have of the internet constituting some pipes or well the physical metaphor you have for the internet beginning with you know some pipes that have, informed the ownership structure, the design, the political economy? I mean, what are platforms? Is it right to think of these large sites, these large services, these large apps as platforms, or do other metaphors make more sense? And before before we get on to that, I did also want to just quickly, before we get off of eBay and Omidyar, I mean, I think uh, you know, I will confirm. I think you are right that there has not been a lot of attention on eBay. It is one of the it is one of the kind of original holdovers, you know, from the pre tech boom and bust of the early two thousands um, that didn't just go up in flames, but has instead continued surging ahead very strongly. Um, and it exists in a weird place. I think. I think you're right that eBay exists in this weird space of being, you know, still very popular, um, very foundational uh, to the the kind of political economy and the business models that now proliferate, um, while also largely ignored and largely, I think, seen as a a fairly um, innocuous thing. Uh, you know, uh, it definitely not demonized in the way that uh, you know the things that we are soon to talk about, the companies and platforms we are soon to talk about are, and and thus through that. Uh, um, through that kind of silent existence um, is not given a lot of attention or a lot of credit for pioneering, you know, being this proto-platform. But also, I mean, we do also have Omidyar and eBay to thank for many of the goons and ghouls uh, and demons <laughs> of today as well. I mean, you know, it, it's it's eBay buying PayPal, 
that gives uh, Peter Till and Elon Musk and Max Levchin, uh, you know, who we have talked about as one of the founders of one of the largest buy now, pay later companies now, um, a firm, you know, it gives them their first big win. It gives them their first billions that they can then go on, you know, but also we have Omid Yard to thank for uh, num- his numerous other ventures, you know, spending his billions through the Omid Yard network, the creation of First Look Media, um, and, and all of that. So, you know, it, it, he is a figure that I think in a lot of ways has become uh, a kind of, you know, only, only given attention in his later years through the same lens that people like George Soros are given attention as a like liberal left wing billionaire type, um, which is what I think he kind of holds himself up as. But insofar as like the scholarship and the critical analysis, um, of like contextualizing eBay within this larger political economy of the internet. Um, I think that's something your book does really well, which I, I have not seen, uh, many other places outside of really specialized like histories of eBay. Yeah. Well, that's good to hear, Jathan. I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that. I, I think, Ed, to, to get back to your question about metaphors, I, you know, maybe the first place to start could be who cares? Like why, why make, so much mess about metaphors. And I think metaphors are actually really important when it comes to the internet, because the internet isn't something we can see. It's not something we can hold on to. I mean, we can grab a fiber optic cable or, you know, grab a, uh, a server rack or something, but it's very difficult to visualize the internet as a whole. You know, it's something I argue in the book that think about a lot of the infrastructures on which our lives depend. You know, I can visualize a a water sewage plant. I can kind of visualize what a power plant looks like. If I try to visualize the internet, if you try to Google image search the internet, it's just it's just incomprehensible. It's so vast. It exists on so many different scales simultaneously. Like, how do we even wrap our minds around it? And this is actually a familiar problem in computing, right? Because uh, computer scientists and programmers, they always have to think in terms of abstractions. Like, abstraction is a term that comes up a lot in in development and, and computer science, because the only thing that's real, the only thing that's actually happening are these tiny, tiny uh, electrical signals that represent zero or one happening somewhere in your hardware. Like everything else is an abstraction, basically, right? The abstractions, the metaphors that we use to visualize these invisible and very complex processes really matter because they frame the way we think about them. I think platform is one of the worst metaphors we have available. And and there's a lot of competition, honestly, for that title, because the, the metaphors that we have are primarily ones that have been forced upon us by the industry and its representatives. They're not ones that have emerged through careful scholarship um, or political organizing. They're really ones that the industry is given to us. So in other words, we're always on enemy territory with m- many of these metaphors, right? We're always speaking their language rather than a language that reflects a degree of accuracy. So what's the problem with platform in particular? Well, there are a number of scholars who have pointed this out, and I refer specifically to the work of Tarleton Gillespie in my in my book. But platform suggests openness, kind of equilibrium, uh, a sense of serving everyone equally, you can think about the subway platform. You can think about something that is a kind of a level plane 
um, it suggests a kind of egalitarianism or something that is, you know, kind of open to all. Now, again, platform originally had a very specific technical meeting, which is, you know, a set of building blocks that a developer can use to build applications on top of, like a set of APIs. But these days, and in the way the industry has deployed the term, platform has come to mean basically any large computational system that exists on the internet, right? Big pieces of software that are kind of clustered together to generate something like Facebook.com. So what I suggest as an alternative is the online mall. And this is a term which, which owes a large debt to Jathan's work, which is to see these large computational systems not as platforms, which again, obscures and mystifies how they truly operate by suggesting that they're open and neutral. It's better to think of them as a type of shopping mall, which is to say, these are corporate enclosures. They are, if you like, a kind of capitalist terrarium in which various interactions occur inside. And they are an attempt, just as the original shopping malls are, were, to synthesize the public square with a commercial space. So if you think about the kind of shopping malls that if you were a suburban teenager, you may have visited growing up, these are places to go hang out with friends, to, you know, maybe skateboard in the atrium and get chased by mall cops, obviously to shop, you know, but they're places where people can socialize and transact. And the critical realization of companies like Google in particular, but also Google's many successors, is that everything that people do in the online mall makes data. Every interaction, every move, everything that occurs, everything that transpires within this corporate enclosure manufactures data. And that data can be monetized in a variety of different ways. So it's that realization that really unlocks the profit potential of the internet. And I should say, because we did talk about eBay, how these uh, corporate enclosures are functioning, they are applying those three core characteristics that we talked about before. They are middlemen, they are makers of network effects, they are sovereigns. But critically, they're adding this new element, which is they are the maker and the monetizer of data. So I think it's fair to think of Google as really the first online mall. And this is a form that critically emerges in the early 2000s out of the rubble of the dot-com bust. I, I appreciate the shout out in, in the book for sure. You you took that metaphor uh, of of understanding platforms as malls and expanded it way further than I did in my work in a really uh, fruitful and interesting way. There is that phrase there of, of of privately owned public space, right? Which is the way that like shopping malls are often described, and now that's the way that platforms, you know, that is social media. That is our privately owned public spaces. That's our, you know, our corporatized agoras uh, is, you know, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. You know, it's where we hang out. Um, there, you know, there's the, the um, it, it's, it's interesting as well to even think about like, you know, the, 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 the term mall has been completely divorced from its origins now because it's, 
it's the North American way that it's used that now has become globalized, that we understand mall as this like enclosed shopping area with a bunch of, you know, stores that you go to um, and a food court and so on. But, you know, the origin of the mall is this kind of like tree lined, uh, shaded outdoor, like the national mall. Yeah. Like the national mall. Exactly. It's, it's a European kind of thing. It's like the arcades of Paris, you know, uh, where, you know, this place where you, people do gather and they, and they, they walk and it is, you know, oftentimes a public space. It is interesting to see, um, as well, that history, um, and how we forget that history it becomes supplanted and replaced by instead, um, a different kind of, uh, a different, a different definition, a different meaning. I would, I, I would also be remiss to not also point out that I think you have a real, another really great alternative metaphor in tandem to, you know, understanding platforms as shopping malls. You, you talk about the, the firms that own the pipes of the internet are best understood as slumlords, right? Gouging users while letting their infrastructure rot. Um, I, and, and so, you know, that's, Low down on the stack, we have the slumlords. High up on the stack, we have the shopping malls. And then they exist uh, in tandem, oftentimes existing as the same same company when we think about like Amazon or Google. Um, could you talk a little bit about that, um, that kind of slumlord aspect as well, which, you know, I think also really links into, you know, a, a hobby horse of mine is that, you know, to understand the internet, we need to understand it in terms of rentier capitalism, which then brings us to these kinds of um, analogies and, and analyses based on slumlords uh, and, and, uh, and shopping malls. So I think to talk about the slumlords of the internet, we should go back to 1995, which I think is the kind of pivotal year for our conversation. And at that point, the private sector takes over the plumbing of the network. They take over the provision of internet service. You know, you start, you can buy an internet subscription just as you can today from a private company. But what happens over the rest of the decade and into the early 2000s is that the private sector deepens its control over the pipes. And there's uh, a set of deregulatory moves which come out of the 1996 uh, Telecommunications Act in particular that's worth touching upon. So Telecommunications Act of 1996 is is a very important moment. It's a, it's a kind of big deregulatory moment. It has all sorts of repercussions for uh, the consolidation of the highly commercialized US media sphere. But it also creates this distinction between so-called telecommunication services and so-called information services. And information services, under the terms of this new law, are not subject to common carrier regulations. Now, common carrier is a concept with a very long history, but it basically means that if you are a company that serves the public, that you have to serve people in the same way the non-discrimination policy. You can't discriminate based on different uses of your service. So what that means concretely is that there is a mechanism through which a deepening corporate dictatorship over the pipes can be achieved, which is these telecoms over the course of the 90s and into the early 2000s, and in particular under the George W. Bush era FCC, managed to reclassify themselves as information services. So they are uh, shorn of 
common carrier regulation. And it makes it possible for them to concentrate the market for internet service in the United States very intensely to the point which today, 76 of all internet subscriptions in the country are controlled by just four firms, by Charter, Comcast, Verizon, and AT&T. So that's the situation we have today, which is a highly concentrated market for internet service. We also, not unrelatedly, pay some of the highest rates for awful service. You know, our, our rates are higher than average rates in Europe or Asia. Uh, in average connection speeds, we rank 14th, which is below Hungary and Thailand. And critically, there are many, many Americans who either don't have a home internet connection or have an internet connection that's frankly not usable for the modern internet. So in 2018, Microsoft researchers found that more than 162 million Americans, think about how big that number is, 162 million Americans do not access the internet at broadband speeds, which is just an astonishing number. And when Pew did a study of why don't people have home internet? Well, half the people said it's because they can't afford it. Now, why are fees so high? It's because these slumlords of the internet are using those fees to pay their executives, to pay multi-million dollar pay packages to their executives. They're spending billions on buybacks and dividends, and they're not investing in infrastructure, which is why the internet is slow in the United States. And it's also why there are communities all over the country, rural communities, urban communities, you name it, who simply can't access decent internet. They've been digitally redlined in many cases. And these that's because these are communities who are too poor or too remote to be profitable enough for one of the major broadband giants to invest in. So it's a very, uh, you know, it's a, it's a pretty catastrophic situation in my view. And I, I have some alternatives, of course, I propose some solutions, but that's, that's who I mean by who are the slumlords of the internet. COVID really brought a lot of that shit to light. Uh, you know, when a lot of people had to go home, work from home, a lot of parents had to find ways to mitigate multiple children getting online instruction. And you're, you know, you have families that are fighting over one device. And then in many cases, families weren't, you know, they weren't having accessible internet to the point where, you know, people were driving buses around with like Wi-Fi rep repeaters in neighborhoods that were underserved so kids can get online and, you know, and try to learn something um, through the online apparatus that was provided to them. And it was, it, that conversation disappeared as quickly as it popped up. People just were like, well, throw their hands in the air, I guess. Oh, well, we can't do anything about it. You know, there's too many other problems we got to worry about and just move on. Absolutely. I mean, what COVID laid bare many social crises, but in particular, I think, as you put it, the, the social crisis around broadband access, where you had people, you know, going, driving to the parking lot of a church that puts out a Wi-Fi repeater, and they're shivering in the parking lot trying to get their homework done, or trying to apply for unemployment, you know, or trying to do their job, or trying to have a video chat with their grandparent in in a nursing home that's been locked down because of COVID. I mean, absolutely. I think I think COVID, you know, really brought it home to a lot of people that this is not a luxury. I mean, a decent 
internet connection is a fundamental prerequisite for full participation in economic, social, and cultural life. It's, it's absolutely essential. And a system that allocates that connectivity solely according to profit is one in which millions of people will be forced to go without it. There's just no question about that. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a great... Um, a, a, a great segue to getting to the the kind of that last bit that the you know the the what what should we do about it uh, bit of the book you know you do in you know well you do in in the chapters also profile many of our old friends and enemies who we're all very familiar with you know you talk about Google you talk about Amazon you talk about the sharing economy you know Uber and so on um, as like this is what the internet now. Uh, essentially is right like the internet exists as this archipelago of platforms that people uh, go to and they access you know the vast majority of internet traffic goes through um, Google Facebook and Amazon right uh, and and so it's like that is to many people what the internet is it's not this like you know electronic frontier this wild west this open planned uh open space you know value you know, where you can go and explore and do whatever yeah that it is that but it isn't that to many people the experience of the internet is the experience of going from one platform to another platform whether it's in an app on your smartphone or uh, a, a link on your bookmark tab right like that's that's what the internet exists as um and we see a lot of the problems with that, right? It's the problems of access. It's the problems of extraction. It's the problems of, you know, what are the imperatives of an internet that is built on this kind of political economy um, where, you know, within capitalism, things like exclusion, like what we're talking about now with digital redlining um, and so on, is not a uh, a bug, but a feature of the system. You need to exclude people. Uh, you need to have a, 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 a large segment of society not being able to access it um, because that's how you make money off of it, right? Uh, and and so we see all around us the problems with this model that begun, you know. And, uh, you know, 20, uh, you know, over 20 years ago with its privatization, damn near 30 years ago now, um, with the privatization, with the handing over to, uh, by design an oligopoly of telecoms and now an oligopoly of platforms and so on. What is to be done about it, uh, in your <laughs> view, right? Like what, you know, we know. We also know now, as Jeremy um, really laid out there, that COVID, if anything, laid bare that the internet is a fundamental basic service in our life. It's not a luxury anymore. Um, things become services and things become fundamental when life, uh, when so society, when social relationships deem them to be fundamental to living and working and socializing and so on. It might, the internet might have been a luxury at some, you know, near past point, but no, that that's no longer the case. The uh, society and our lives have been completely organized and orbiting around access to the internet. Um, and so what then is to be done about what, not only what is the argument for, 
but what are some of the available pathways for, um, as you lay out in the book, you know, this kind of democratization, deprivatization, decommodification um, of the internet? Well, if we think about privatization, privatization was a process. It wasn't an event. It wasn't just 1995. It wasn't about the transfer of ownership of public assets to the private sector. That's that's not even really what happened with the NSFnet. What the privatization of the internet was, was the programming of the profit motive into every layer of the network, which is to say a network that had been built by research scientists, initially under the auspices of the Pentagon and then under the auspices of the National Science Foundation, would be repurposed into an engine of profit, profit maximization. And that process is the one that I spend most of my book talking about. It takes many years. It takes a variety of interventions at a technical level, a legal level, financial level, and so on. And the profit-driven internet that it's produced has in my view, a lot of very deleterious consequences. We've talked about a crisis of connectivity that that's produced at the level of the pipes. Going up to the so-called platforms, we could talk about a whole host of harms, of which I know you've spent a lot of time covering on this show. So your, your listeners will be familiar with some of those. In terms of what is to be done, in a word, the answer is deprivatization. Now, what does deprivatization mean? It means an internet in which people are not profit rule. That's that's the horizon. That's that's the the north star. Now what might that look like concretely and how might we get there? Well, I think you know in my in my view it's always important to look at what are the parts of society that are in motion. What are the experiments that are occurring already rather than coming up with kind of master blueprint that I would want to impose from the top down. Rather trying to understand this impulse toward creating a people's internet as something that already exists out into the world. And some, uh, that's my job to try to detect instances of that impulse and stitch them together into a broader political articulation. You might recognize a, a debt to, to Marx in that case. <laughs> so where are those impulses present? You know, Where could we detect the, uh, the real movement, so to speak? Well, at the level of the pipes down the stack, there are hundreds of so-called community networks across the country. These are networks that are either publicly owned, for instance, by a municipality, or cooperatively owned. They are owned and governed by their members. And these community networks, research has shown, tend to provide much better service at much lower rates than their corporate counterparts. You know, rural North Dakota has some of the best internet in the country because of its cooperatives. Uh, these cooperatives in particular are so-called rural electric cooperatives, most of which date from the New Deal when they were seeded with federal money as part of FDR's rural electrification campaign. So one of the nice things about community networks, in addition to the fact that they are able to prioritize service and universal connectivity over executive pay packages and uh, you know buybacks and dividends, is they enable people to participate in the decisions that affect their lives. Community networks, at their best, actually embed democratic practices and principles into their everyday operations. So if you think about those rural cooperatives in North Dakota, you know, to retain their tax exemption, they have to hold regular democratic elections for their board. They have to return excess revenue to their membership and so on. So community networks, to my mind, are 
the building blocks of how we might deprivatize the pipes, that there are places where people are placed over profit, where social needs like universal connectivity are prioritized over enriching shareholders, and where communities can actually participate in the governance of their infrastructure. Now, of course, community networks aren't enough, because as we know, the internet is not just about the last mile. It's not just about you know your local broadband networks. There's also all of these deeper networks. We've talked about the backbones, for instance, but you have content delivery networks, internet exchange points. There's all sorts of guts to the internet. So I don't mean to suggest that community networks are the only solution, but that they are a very promising starting point in terms of what it might look like to put people over profit at the level of the pipes. Now, as we go up the stack and consider what we've been talking about as the online malls, we have to take a more diverse range of approaches because the type of creatures that we encounter at this altitude of the internet are more diverse and more complex. I mean, the reality is that a company like Facebook is much bigger and much more complex than a company like Comcast in terms of the level of uh, impact on the world, in terms of the complexity of the software that they're running. When it comes to moving up the stack, I suggest a two pronged approach. The first is to curb the power of the online malls, to use various public policy tools to encircle them, to shrink their footprint with an eye towards their abolition, which I think should be our goal, while also, and this is the other prong, developing a constellation of alternatives that can lay claim to the space that they currently occupy. So to extend the online mall metaphor, I talk about breaking the enclosures and seeding them with all sorts of invasive species. Now, what might some of these invasive species look like? And again, I think we can look to existing experiments for inspiration. So I talk a bit about experiments around federated social media, like the Mastodon project, uh, around worker-run app-based services in the so-called platform cooperativism space. I point to a number of, I think, very interesting ventures. But I emphasize here that these ventures and the communities of which they're a part, like platform cooperativism or the decentralized web community, tend to be somewhat niche communities. They tend to attract a certain a type of person who tends to have kind of more of a technical mindset. So that if we ultimately want to create online spaces that work for everybody, we need to create places where ordinary people can come in, get connected with resources, and build the types of spaces they want. In other words, we need a lot more imagination, and we need to fund that imagination through public investment. We need to embody it in brick-and-mortar spaces where people can come together and actually build the internet they want. So that's kind of a placeholder because I don't know what that internet is going to look like, but I have a lot of faith in the creativity of the masses. These things are, are, are not only needed, but they are in a lot of ways feared by the incumbents as well. Uh, you know, you talk about in particular with uh, like municipal broadband that the, the, the broadband cartels, the large, you know, oligopoly of telecoms, you know, spend a lot of money lobbying or tying up these community networks in lawsuits uh, to try to prevent or, you know, to make illegal 
these kinds of municipal networks. Um, why? Not because it's going to actually like impact Comcast's bottom line if, you know, Chattanooga, uh, or Pier, North Dakota or whatever have a, uh, a, a, re a really high, you know, high speed municipal broadband network. But it is, as you talk about in the book, it's a fear of a long, uh, of, of a good example, right? It's the threat of a good example. Um, you quote Victor Picker, uh, Picard and David Elliott, who say, you know, quote, what the broadband cartel fears is less the near-term loss of market share than the long-term threat of a good example. And I think this is really key here as well, where this is not just like pie in the sky, kind of stuff, you know, these municipal networks, these platform cooperatives. Um, I mean, I think in a lot of ways we can also see Web3 um, as, you know, in some ways quite intentionally aping this language of democracy and decentralization to present an alternative, uh, a quote-unquote alternative that offers itself up as a kind of usurper of, of these you know, slumlords and shopping malls um, but to only do so in a way that actually reinforces that political economy, reinforces those divides, and reinforces the position of people already in power. Um, and, and again, what that shows to me uh, is that they are trying to crowd out actually radical um, projects and, and initiatives uh, because they fear that long-term threat of a good example. Um, and I think many of the things that you talk about in your book as uh, these experiments, these pathways, these alternatives to deprivatization, decommodification, demarketization, and so on, um, you know, the, like you said, they're not going to just do it all at once, but, but the, as you also argue, the internet itself did not become this thing all at once. It became this thing through, over time, it was a process. It also did become this thing through the support of the state. Um, and I think that is also a really important vector here, um, is understanding the way that the state is already captured uh, by the the broadband cartel, for example, the way that, um, you know, the Andreessen Horowitzes of the world are currently trying to capture the state um, in terms of crypto. Uh, but, you know, to really, I think, hold the uh, hold our representatives uh, feet to the fire in terms of, you know, providing these kinds of services, providing support for um, an actually democratic uh, actually accessible internet. Yeah, the Web3 point is an interesting one, Jathan, because, you know, decentralization is a term that's getting a lot of attention. Um, and I, I think it's important to note that decentralization is not inherently democratizing. And in fact, you know, when we talk about the community, in terms of a community network, for instance, or a community-based uh, social media site, it's important to acknowledge that the community ha has a very long and racist history in the United States. I mean, that there's a lot of ugliness to how community control has historically worked. You know, communities tend to, rich communities try to hoard their wealth uh, and keep it out of the hands of poor communities. So, I think it's always important to be very clear about some of the limitations here and to 
point out that we also need interventions that are going to occur at, at a regional and national and international scale, right? That these are really just starting points. Um, but it's interesting that decentralization has gotten such cachet because I think it does speak to a desire among a lot of people for an internet that is more within their control. You know, there is a sense that it's just being controlled by executives that are very far away, like Mark Zuckerberg, and that's a correct perception. So I think it's, it's you know, to the extent that we can acknowledge the validity of some of the sentiments that have produced the desire while also trying to steer people away from some of the so-called solutions that, as you point out, will make the problems worse. One thing I always like to ask, because I am I worry or oscillate between worry and, and, and not worry about it, is, you know, I think I was thinking about it when you talked about the real informal subsumption subsumption of labor. It's not and, and like the sort of analogous process of the idea that, you know, there are like, are there any changes that have been made to the political economy of the digital uh, or of the internet that may be permanent or may have closed off options for us to achieve what we want or what would be a more democratized, deprivatized internet? Um, or is it that where we are right now is that you know, they've, yeah, they've been able to discipline and reshape the ownership, uh, the way that the internet is owned, the incentives at each level of the stack, but that in of itself does not mean this is it. And, or that reforms that we make or changes that we make or disruptions to that stack can only go so far. That's an important question, Ed. And I think it it lets us move into a somewhat more pessimistic register, <laughs> which I think is necessary. Because I think I've been I've been giving us a lot of optimism. But I think we also need maybe to to strike a few more sober-minded notes, which which I think you're you're helping us to do here, which is that you know we're we're inheriting uh, a set of structures that have been designed for certain ends, you know, initially for the purpose of of war making. Than for the purposes of profit maximization. Uh, in the history of technology, there's always this very strong path dependency, right? Where you know the internet, as it's currently existed, exists in large part because of how networking developed, and networking developed the way it did because of the way digital computing did, and so on and so forth, right? So we're standing with our backs to this whole mountain of wreckage that's piled up <laughs> behind us, and we're trying to figure out. How do we make something halfway decent out of this? We think about historical materialism. You mentioned historical materialism at the beginning of the conversation, Jathan. To bring it back there, I think of historical materialism as a, a science, if you like, of constraints. That it's about the constraints that a mode of production places on the range of human activity, the range of human agency. And many of those constraints in our own era that have been transmitted from the past are technological, are technical, right? Are embedded in these technical artifacts, right? So this question of how do we build a better internet is, you know, we're, we're in the belly of the beast trying to find our way out, you know, without a flashlight. It's a very difficult question. And I think there are mitigations and there are promising experiments and there are things that would 
obviously make a lot of people's lives better. But there are, I think, real limitations, you know, and and I and I think this is partly why I place so much emphasis and hope in imagination, in the political necessity of not just calling for imagination, which is an easy thing to do, but actually creating material support for kind of mass acts of creativity. Like what would it look like for major public investment to go into places where people could get connected with technical resources to build the online spaces they want? That to me is a promising direction in terms of getting out of that conundrum. But again, it's it's not an exit because inevitably people's sense of what's possible and indeed what is possible with our technical tools has been dictated by the decades of the history of the internet, but then also centuries of capitalist technology. So we're always faced with that. But of course, that's not limited to technology, right? That's limit, that's that's that is common to any anyone who has aspirations of a post-capitalist project, which is this difficulty of doing imminent politics. Like how do we how do we get out of something? How do we build something that looks different from inside the shell of the old. It's a very contradictory and circuitous process. Fortunately, I think that shell is revealing more and more cracks, uh, not just the spider cracks, but the really structural cracks um, in it, you know, every day revealing more and more of those cracks and, and, and how inadequate um, all of it is. Um, I think that is a great place to end this conversation. Um, thank you so much, Ben, for coming on and discussing your book, which you know I will plug again for you here. It's coming out. Um, it should be out a week after this episode is released in so mid-June. Uh, pick it up at Verso or any other um, bookstore where you get fine titles such as The Internet for People. Uh, the Fight for Our Digital Future by Ben Tarnuff. And while you're at it, go and pick up a, uh, a copy of Logic Magazine as well. Um, you will not regret it at all. So thank you, Ben. Uh, this has been a real joy. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Great. And you, dear listeners, can find us as well at patreon.com slash thismachinekills, um, where you can also get another episode every single week for just $5 a month. So find us there on the premium feed. Um, and until next time, see ya. See ya.
Radio.